dial star 611 for assistance as your cellular phone is not authorized for use at this time. Pour de l'assistance, veuillez composer étoile 611. Vous n'avez pas le... Hello, podcast listener. Everything around you that you call life was made by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people can use. The App Guy Podcasts, straight from your host, Paul the App Guy, sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. And now, Paul the App Guy. So welcome to the App Guy Podcast. Um, My name's Paul Kemp. I'm your host. I'm the founder of OneMob. And in this episode, I'm really delighted to have joined me, uh, Greg Vodika. Greg is a millennial consultant, and he works for a company called Barclay. They're a fiercely independent ad agency. They're based in Kansas City. Now, I'm really interested in speaking with Greg because he's going to tell us about the millennials. They're that group of individuals that he actually belongs to who are the the crazy millennials, you know, the ones that are kind of all born in the internet age. Greg works with Jeff Fromm. And he is um, 50 years old, so he's not a millennial, but he does have millennial twin daughters. And so he's seen it from the lens of his daughters, whereas Greg's seen uh, how millennials behave from his own lens. And so we've got some fascinating things to talk to you about, Greg. So I'm really delighted that you've joined us. And I just wanted to kind of start this with asking, what is millennials? What, what are they? Um, you know, t- tell us a little bit about, about yourself and then who millennials are. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. Um, again, like, like Paul said, my name is Greg Bodica. Um, I am a millennial. Um, one of the reasons a lot of people like talking to me about millennials is because I you know, offer a lot of experience you know, personally with it. Um, people are always looking for a definition of millennials, and you'll, everywhere you look, there's going to be a different definition. The definition that we use here at Barclay is anyone born between 1977 and 1996. So the age range is about 18 to 34 years old. Um, that doesn't tell you a whole lot about millennials. Obviously, a 34-year-old single mother of two might be entirely different than an 18-year-old just getting ready to go off to college. We're not talking about the same consumption patterns when you look at those two different people on each end of the spectrum. We do offer some very big generalizations about millennials that are true about every millennial, 18 or 34. So the way I like to define millennials isn't by their age or necessarily about their behavior, but things that are true about the whole group. Um, Like you said, Paul, Millennials did grow up in a digital age. We call millennials the first generation of digital natives. Um, the way I like to articulate that is I often ask an audience whether you know there's anyone in the room that speaks another language, and you know I usually get a few hands in the air. And so I'll have some folks say, "Yeah, I, you know I speak English, but I also speak Spanish." And the way I, you know I speak Spanish because I took it in college and I you know, studied for a long time, and I'm Spanish learned. I would explain that as you know your Spanish learn. You know, if you grew up in a country that is dominantly speaking Spanish, you would be Spanish native. So you grow up in the culture, you're able to speak it at a different level. That's the way we talk about digital technology, where millennials grow, grew up with digital technology, so they're digitally native. This is so second nature to them, just like a foreign language growing up in that culture, where older generations are much more digitally learned, where they might be able to tiptoe around a Twitter account or a, you know an app development software, but they're not going to be able to understand it to the extent that millennials are. And we're going to see that through the next bunch of generations after millennials, is that this digital native trend is huge in understanding how you know different people consume media 
Um, so just to give you a little bit idea of the millennial generation, there are more than 80 million of them. So this is the biggest generation we've seen in a long time. They're larger than the baby boomers, um, 20% bigger than Gen X. Um, they make up about 25% of the U.S. population is growing. Um, so if that gives you an idea of why people are talking about millennials and why this is such a hot topic today, um, it really should. And, and like you said, Paul, this is a generation that people are often confused about. Um, often millennials are called the enigma generation. Um, and the reason for that is because this is the first generation that consumes media and you know consumes anything in an entirely different way. Um, when we talk about media, the consumption patterns are obviously different because of you know the digital native at the core. So millennials, you know, where we used to talk about traditional media being you know there's out of home and we had television, radio, these kinds of things were very traditional media. Today, millennials consume media entirely differently. So that's why a lot of people are confused. And I, I'm hoping today I can shed some light on a few things that uh, might be confusing to someone who you know doesn't necessarily talk about millennials as often as I do. Yeah, well, I'm confused as well. But I mean, millennials are massively important to uh, us. This is the App Guy podcast. People listening to this are app developers, indie app developers. And it's such a hugely important uh, market for us. You know, how do, as app developers, we really want to engage and influence millennials. How do we go about doing that? How's the best strategy for us to, to engage with these, the, this market? You know, I'll say one thing. Um, bringing up the topic of apps and app development, um, we always say that if you can take one thing away from the research that we have about millennials, um, especially in the scope of you know technology, technology for the sake of technology isn't cool with millennials. Having all the bells and whistles is no longer cool. That stuff is it just is behind the scenes. It's price of admission. That doesn't make the consumer experience any different. We say useful is the new cool. If you can be wildly useful, that is really cool for millennials. So if your app or your software, whatever it may be, if it is wildly useful, then it's much cooler than just having all the new bells and whistles. Technology for the sake of technology is not cool. Useful is the new cool. So like I said, when we're talking about apps, I would say that the, the way to engage millennials is you know, we have all kinds of different framework that talks about being really digitally disruptive and radically transparent. These things are key for identifying you know, millennial trends. Um, the first thing I want to you know, identify is that useful technology is cool. A useful app is much cooler than something that you know, doesn't enhance an experience. If you're able to create something that makes anything easier for millennials, you win with this group. This group is the first generation that we've seen as the generation of multitaskers. You, these Millennials want to do more than one thing at once, and if you're able to make that easier on them, which a lot of apps do, you're going to win with millennials. And you mentioned that word digitally disruptive. That's you know, a hugely popular thing for app developers now to try and disrupt industries. Perhaps we can kind of focus in a little bit on that. How can we be disruptive to an industry where millennials are already part of digitalization of that, that industry anyway. How can we really focus on the disruptive side of it? Well, I'll talk about disruption in a much broader general general sense at first. Um, and, and disruption is really huge for millennials. And you have to understand that millennials have no value in old schemas. Um, and, and an example I use of a brand that was very disruptive was Dollar Shave Club. Yes, I love their video. It's fantastic. I use that as an example because for years and years and years, Gillette owned the market in you know shave in shave technology, and they were saying you know why change anything? We're doing great. 
Um, and the reason I say you need to disrupt and you need to change is because for Gillette, they said we're fine. And Dollar Shave Club came in and took over the market and took a big chunk of their business. Um, because Dollar Shave Club came in and said, we can be disruptive to this. We can offer a new model, a new way of doing things. We're tired of the old way of doing things. We can do it better. That's what I mean by disruption. Offering something that changes the norm. If, if there's a business out there that is doing something in one pattern for decades and decades and decades, and you're able to be disruptive, millennials love you. And that's that's you know, a huge trend we see with brands like Warby Parker and other brands that are you know e-commerce where you you're able to just make a consumer journey disrupted and in, offer an entirely new model for a way of doing things. So when you translate that to apps, really consider that what are what are people doing that you know is now not not exciting anymore. Um, disruption is it's a hard thing to do. We offer disruption workshops in you know uh, what we do here at Barclay because it's something you really have to get it, your your company, your brand, whatever you're working with. You have to get everyone in a room and really figure out how can we offer something wildly different and be much cooler than what everyone else is doing out there. And it's not something I can give you you know today uh, you know the the formula for disruption, um, but it's, it's definitely something that you need to consider with you know moving forward talking to millennials. Um, these they have no value in old schemas. They're looking for new disruptive schemas. Dollar Shave Club is a great example, and perhaps not simply just for the fact that it was disruptive, but also it brings into question a brand versus a personality because it was wildly successful because of the video, and it was the founder on that video that did the Kickstarter. And I wondered, you know, as app developers, we have this choice between do we try to present ourselves as a corporate brand a professional looking brand or do we try to input some of our own personality into the overall branding to make it more humanistic have you got any comments about that well i would always say with any brand we work with whether it be you know mobile technology or not um, being transparent is huge with millennials. This generation, more than the past, just don't believe in brand messages. You can be an enormous brand saying whatever you want through you know, brand messages on TV and such. Millennials don't buy into that anymore. Millennials buy into brands that are authentic and transparent. If you're able to be really transparent, millennials will love you. And so adding that kind of personal touch, that personal narrative into your brand, I would always say is there's a ton of value in that. Telling your brand's story and sharing that story from the beginning to end, millennials can buy into that because they're not looking for brands, you know, they're not buying into your story. They want to add you to their story. Consider your target audience no longer a target anymore, consider them a partner. Think about your partner in this whole process. How would you treat a partner? You would want them to be involved in your story and you would want that you would want their story to have you in it. And that's what you need to think about when you're talking about rebranding. Um, and, and you know, there's a lot of, while we're talking about Dollar Shave Club, I, you're reminding me of Uber. I talk about Uber very often because another really digitally disruptive app where you're talking about something that, you know, Everyone was doing something one way and they decided to completely disrupt. And that, as a brand, I believe is a very authentic brand as well. I just took an Uber ride uh, maybe three hours ago and, and I, I used it for the first time two weeks ago. And uh, every time I use it, it just keeps getting better and better. And I, I'm too addicted to this uh, service now and it's so disruptive and it's just so great as well, the fact that you can use your iPhone uh, for such a great service. The way Uber encouraging viral behavior is that they uh, this week sent out an invitation to share 
their app to your friends on Facebook and other social medias and offering a 30 or I think 20 or 30 dollar credit for both the person who joins and to you as the sharer. So that's really putting a monetary value on to sharing. How do we encourage viral behavior among the millennials? You know, that's a terrific question. Another one that there is no formula out there for. I would not be able to, you know, give you in a short sentence how to do this. Um, I, I want you to think big picture and think of the biggest possible future for whatever app or whatever brand we're talking about. And when we talk about making things viral and making things just so shareable, we talk about the participation economy. And I'm going to break that down for you really quick. Um, Jeff and I developed this concept when we first started looking at millennials, and we call it the millennial-inspired participation economy. And that is that you know, 10 years ago, we all probably would have agreed that the proxy for brand value was your functional benefits plus your emotional benefits divided by price. And that was going to be your brand's value. Well, today we add a new element. We call it the functional plus emotional plus participative benefits divided by price is now your brand value. So adding that sense of participation is huge. And participation doesn't mean much until I dissect it. And participation, we say, is the co-creation of the product or service, the co-creation of the marketing or messaging, and the co-creation of the consumer journey or consumer experience. Brands that win with millennials are inviting millennials to participate in all three of these areas. They're saying, we want you to be involved from day one in the creation. The other side of the spectrum is this idea of shareworthiness, and that's how things go viral. If I'm involved from early on stage of a brand's life cycle, and I'm involved in the messaging, and I'm involved as an active participant and a partner, that makes me that much more able to share my experiences. That's how things are getting shared. Now, it's great to offer something that's such an incentive to say, you know, we're going to give you this discount for this. Um, you know, and a lot of people say that millennials are very, very savvy in terms of the way they, you know, consume anything, um, that, you know, things like coupons and discounts are tough because this generation seems disloyal. They don't have any brand loyalty. And I would always argue that, that it's not that they're not brand loyal. You take a look outside of Chipotle at any lunch hour and you'll agree that millennials are wildly loyal to brands that they love. And so finding that love is actively being inviting active participation and inviting shareworthiness. So if you can invite millennials to participate, they will share. And so if you're able to do those two things, that's kind of the proxy. That's the formula we have for making things. Not, I, I wouldn't even say go viral, but making millennials want to identify your brand with their social community. And if you're able to do that, if you're able to say, we want this millennial to be part of our story. The millennial turns around and says, I want this brand to be part of my story. All of a sudden, we're sharing everything. Now, when we talk about social media, um, we use the idea of socialization of everything. And I'll explain that really quick. Socialization of everything is this idea that millennials believe that anything worth doing is then worth sharing. And what I mean by that, I use the tree falls in a forest analogy. And, you know, you've heard if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around, does it make a sound? With millennials, you have to change it. You have to think digitally. If the sun sets over Kansas City and I'm not there to take an Instagram picture, did it really set? <laughs> think about that when you think of the millennial lens of socialization. Things that happen, things that millennials value, anything they do, whether it's going to the grocery store, preparing a meal, going out with friends, these are things we see on social platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And when a millennial doesn't share an experience, 
does it really happen? These are the questions millennials are asking themselves when they look back at their social profile. So anything worth doing is then worth sharing. Keep that in mind that you want millennials to share your content, not because it's your brand, but because you want them to care about it enough in their life, in their day-to-day Instagram sharing. You want them to be You want them to share your content because it's part of their life. You want them to share that tree falling in the forest because that's something they identify with and they care enough to put it on their page. So be the brand that they're able to buy into and not the brand that you're selling a discount, the 30% discount to, you know, share this. That only gets you so far. That's a short incentive. Be the brand that they want to identify with, that they want to share because they it adds to their story. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense, in fact. And as we're talking about social media, I mean, it's important to probably bring up Facebook because I'm, I'm hearing that millennials are leaving Facebook in in search of perhaps other uh, social media outlets. You mentioned Instagram, and we know Snapchat's really big. I'm guessing that's because like their parents are on Facebook and everyone's on Facebook, so they want... You know, is that is that a true statement that millennials are leaving Facebook? You know, I get this question very, very often, and it's one that I hate answering because, I, you know, it, regardless of my opinion, I could give you my opinion of whether or not I think Facebook's going to be around in the next decade. Um, and the truth of the matter is, Facebook's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, Facebook is, is a powerhouse, and I think you know, brands, brands, and marketers have to you know understand that Facebook still exists in its in its full capacity. Now, is it that millennials are walking away? Is it that younger generations are finding, you know, new kinds of software, new kinds of social pages that they're not, you know, you know, as invested in Facebook? Yeah, that might be. When you offer things like Snapchat and Instagram, you, you see younger generations now saying Facebook's not as cool as older generations thought when Facebook was, you know, in its peak. And so I'm not going to say whether or not I think, you know, millennials are walking away from Facebook or if Facebook, you know, maybe makes a radical disruptive change soon that it might, you know, not be back on top. Um, what I will say is there's value in offering many kinds of social platforms. There will never be the one solo platform for social sharing. And I think there's a lot of value in having multiple places to share different kinds of content. And the problem that comes is when Instagram says, well, we're also going to start allowing users to share video. Then all of a sudden Vine says, wait a second, that was our idea. There's all these different platforms that are trying to be the one platform. Own whatever you own. Instagram, if they wanted to be the photo sharing app, they should own photo sharing, not video sharing, photo sharing. You know, in terms of social media, there's going to be other platforms that allow consumers to share content. Own a space that you, you know, can own. With Snapchat, they own the space of disappearing messages. And when other apps come in and say, well, we can offer disappearing texts or we can offer, you know, different kinds of this, this, anonym, this anonymous type of sharing, who really owns that? And that's what I like to talk about with any social platform. And you can argue with me whether or not Facebook owns that actual social profile, but Facebook still has a lot of value in that is where you keep your social biography. And so I can't have a social biography on Snapchat. It doesn't allow me to do that. I can, I can have a photographic social biography on Instagram, but not to the point of Facebook. So 
every app, or I'm sorry, every different social platform is different. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And keep that in mind, looking at, you know, the future of different apps that are going to come up, what is not being offered right now, or what is, you know, where's an opportunity to offer something that doesn't exist right now. There's a lot of social platforms that can exist together. You see, it's important for us as app developers, because we decide where to spend money on these social networks deciding who's actually going to be downloading our apps because app discovery is pretty challenging for us you know releasing a new app it's very difficult to get onto the uh, iTunes homepage or in the top 10 of apps and so advertising becomes quite important and then it's just trying to figure out where to spend our ad money but also we are app developers um, we rely on smartphones do you know the penetration of smartphones uh, within the millennial group and, and kind of how important is a smartphone to a millennial? Oh, wow. Well, I don't have a number in front of me to give you, but I mean, you can pretty much say that smartphones are wildly useful with any millennial and that there's, <laughs> I, I'd say a very small percentage of millennials that don't have one. And the way we talk about millennials is their second screen first. And we used to talk about first screen being your television or whatever that whatever that primary screen is. And a mobile device is then your secondary screen. That is something secondary to the screen that's in front of you. Whether you're sitting at your computer, your mobile device is your second screen. With millennials, they are second screen first. That means while I'm watching TV, I'm probably on my Twitter simultaneously and I'm paying more attention to my mobile device. And second screen first just means the idea that I always use my smartphone. It's with me wherever I go. And when we talked about the socialization of everything, that's part of it. That is my tool. That is my knife. That is my sword. That is my shield against any type of consuming I do. So I'm going into a store, I'm going to crowdsource my social network just to see before I make a you know purchase decision because I don't believe in brands anymore. I don't believe in experts. I believe in my social network. So using that smartphone, that is my only tool that I have at you know my disposal. And that's why millennials are so savvy is because it's limitless information at my fingertips. So <laughs> I would definitely say, Paul, that smartphones are one of the most important things when we talk about millennials, and it is because the vast, vast majority of millennials have that smartphone with them 99% of the time, and that's you know with them when they go to bed, with them when they wake up in the morning. You know, it's interesting, Greg, because um, I have many conversations with clients, and I'm sure that people listening to this have these same conversations where, for example, my client has... One of my clients that I'll keep anonymous has uh, just told me they've spent $500,000 on their website. But when it comes to um, putting money towards an app, it because they feel it's new, they're only willing to spend a fraction of that, you know, somewhere in the region of about fifteen dollars to $20,000 on the actual app itself. And I need to have kind of conversations with these people to try to encourage them to spend the money on apps and spend the money on uh, the mobile side of things as, as well as the website. And just hearing what you said there, I mean, if if you were to have that conversation with someone who says no websites are, are still it and that's where all my money is going to go, how would you convince that client to actually spend money on an app instead of a website? Well, I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a long answer to this, Paul, because this is a, a challenge that we face every day in marketing. And um, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to back up and speak much more generally again and not exclusively to apps. Um, I draw a pyramid for clients. And I, I, we have 
several clients that have an older core audience. This is an older audience that I wouldn't say is dying out, but they have an older audience and they're realizing the influence of millennials and we need to appeal to this younger audience, but we don't want to change too much because we don't want to lose our core older audience. That's a huge problem a lot of brands have. So I draw this pyramid for them and if you look at the, it's split into thirds. So the bottom third, the biggest section, though I call that the things you're doing today. Things you're doing well. That's the price of admission. These are things that your consumer expects. A great website is an expectation. You need that. There's value there. We get that. That is things you're doing today. Keep doing them. Allocate one-third or whatever percentage of your budget, your marketing budget. Allocate that bottom portion of your pyramid to the great things you're doing today. Don't walk away from them. Now, the middle section, quite a bit smaller, but still a substantial part of the pyramid, these are things that we're looking to the future, things that you think you are worth an investment in the future. That might be something like an app development. That might be a disruptive schema. Those are things that we want to allocate a part of the budget to things we want to do tomorrow. These are not price of admission things. These are things we think are game changers, bigger ideas. Now, the top of the pyramid, very small piece. Sometimes I say even as small as 5% of the budget, whatever percent you feel comfortable with. You need to throw out the idea of return on investment, the way we normally look at ROI. Throw that out. We call this the blue ocean peak of the pyramid. The blue ocean peak is for those huge game-changing ideas, those really disruptive ideas, the ideas that have old-school marketers shaking, saying, I don't feel comfortable disrupting this much. Our brand is stable. We have an old core audience. Throw out everything you thought you knew about marketing. That 5% needs to go to those big game-changing ideas. Are you comfortable risking a piece of your budget on that game-changing idea? If not, someone else is. Someone else will disrupt. And so, you know, often I ask, you know, do you, are you able to make that risk? And the real question is, can you afford not to make that risk? And so that's why I draw it in a pyramid. Keep doing the things you're doing at the bottom of the pyramid. That, that's the most of your budget is going to the great things you're doing, which might be your great website. The middle, things that you want to do tomorrow, things that you, you think are worth an investment. And the top, you really need to allocate a piece of a budget to something that is uncomfortable for you, something disruptive. And a lot of times that might be a mobile app. That might be saying, I think we could make this consumer experience so much more useful if we had some sort of mobile app. And we need to allocate a piece of the budget to that. And it might not be something I'm exactly comfortable with, but I know if I don't do it, our competitors are going to. And the, when you talk about it that way, can you afford not to make this risk? Can you afford not to be disruptive? That's how we really get people to start really thinking about what are these game-changing ideas that I haven't thought of. Great advice, Greg. And um, just kind of looking at the pyramid, drawing that, and you're right. These, that's a very good kind of conversation to have with the client when trying to convince them to look to the future. I mean, the future is already here. Uh, it was only two or three years ago we were talking about browsing on a, a smartphone is about a third of the actual traffic. Now, it's for many clients, it's over half, and it's definitely going to peak even more than that. But the other conversation that we have as app developers, and you could probably think about this more broadly, is paid apps versus free apps. And that really talks to the question that do millennials have any buying power? For, you know, Do they have any money? Sure. And again, I, I, I wish I had some statistic to give you on whether or not millennials prefer free versus, you know, apps that cost something. Um, and obviously, I would I, I would assume that if I can get the same quality um, experience or the same quality service 
from a free app, I'm going to choose the free one. And you got to think about millennials as being in anything they consume, whether they're in the grocery store picking a box of cereal, they're going for the best possible value. And if I can find an app that you know offers essentially the same service, the same product, I'm going to go with the free one. So keep that in mind. Now, there's definitely some value though in in putting a value on your on your software on your app on your product you know if you offer something for a premium price it's perceived as a premium product so you have to really think about essentially what the app does is this something that we think is worth you know a couple bucks to someone is this something that we think people will pay for and if it is if it's in that space if it's in something that you think a premium product for a premium audience makes sense then that might be a road to go down if this is something that I think a lot of people can, you know, replicate, there's other people out there offering this, you know, might not be the best solution. Now, as far as purchasing power, I, I discredit a lot of people that say millennials don't have purchasing power. Millennials today are 21% or $1.3 trillion annually of buying power. So let me repeat that. 21% or $1.3 trillion of direct buying power annually. Now that's in America. We're not even talking about the globe. This is a ton of money that millennials are directly contributing. Now you got to remember that when we talk about millennials, we're not always talking about 18 year old kids going off to college. We got to think of the older millennials. We go all the way up to we around age 34. And so if you think of people in there, you know, low 30s or upper 20s, there are there's money there, and this is money not only that is. You know, not. I'm not saying the millennials are actively trying to get rid of their money, tossing it into some sort of startup. But this, these are consumers and you know people that are looking for these entrepreneurships, looking for a small business, looking for things to add to their story. Like I said, so when we talk about apps, it's cool when you see millennials saying this is something valuable to me, and you, you'll notice that it's there's more value there than there might be to an older audience. And so millennials with their buying power, whether it might be you know, significantly smaller or larger based on who you're talking to, it doesn't necessarily matter if the app's only going to cost you a couple bucks. The money's there. That, if that answers your question, Paul. It does, yes. And you know, the other thing I was thinking of as well is when marketing to millennials, I guess compared to marketing to perhaps the generation that uh, are not as... As, as savvy on on uh, social media there is a danger i guess if you do get the message wrong or if you do kind of annoy i mean for example app developers our worst fear is having bugs in the app and, and causing the apps to crash because the feedback is almost instantaneous and it can be quite negative as well when you, you get on the wrong side of i guess these millennials so there must be a danger to uh, getting the message wrong and just seeing the consequences and how viral that can go as well uh, I, yeah, I definitely, I definitely warn that. The thing we say often, Paul, is that you don't want to make a claim that you can't support. If your product or service, you know, can't support these marketing claims you're saying, then you're not radically transparent. You're not authentic, and millennials can sniff that out, and they'll make you pay for it. You know, if your marketing message is anything above what you can offer, that's a mistake, and and I think that's a mistake with any generation. But millennials, especially, aren't going to forgive you. And that's wonderful because we spoke about being authentic and transparent at the start. And as we come to the end of the uh, chat that we're having on this podcast, we've kind of brought it back full circle there from, you know, the takeaway messages that I, I, I'm getting from this is, is to be always authentic and transparent in what we do with millennials. 
and to participate with them and, and get them in the co-creation part of the marketing as well, get them in early so that they can feel that they're helping having creating the apps as well. So this has been great, Greg. I've learned so much and I'm sure the audience have learned a lot as well. You know, it's getting towards the, the end of our chat. Is uh, I also wanted to mention that you do have the ability to kind of um, go onto your website and, and look at the reports and, and people can reach out to you as well. Uh, how, how best can people reach out to you? So millennialmarketing.com is where the best place you can probably find us. Um, we love answering questions, love talking about this stuff. If you can't tell, it's something that gets me excited to talk about. So happy to, happy to answer any questions. Great. And so, yeah, I'll put that on the show notes at the end. Millennialmarketing.com is where we can find you and uh, reach out to you as well. Greg, it's been just terrific. Uh, I've I've learned so much. I'm sure that people listening to this will value the fact that you've been shared so openly about millennials and what an important, uh, I guess, what an important group of people and what a you know 1.3 trillion of buying power in the U.S. alone. And remember, when, as we we talk about app developers, we we're talking about the globe because you know com- uh, companies like Google and Apple have such global uh, presence now that it's not simply just the US. So that 1.3 trillion, I can imagine, is, is much, much higher as the global market for millennials. Um, but I'm very cautious about saying the word market for millennials because we're not supposed to treat them as a marketing kind of thing, are we? So, is there anything else you feel like we've missed, Greg, that you feel like we should share or, or have we kind of touched everything? You know, we've, we've, we've done pretty well. Um, I will offer one more thing that um, we, we just started talking about very recently. It's a new kind of concept that we're still toying with, but it's the idea of storytelling versus story doing. And uh, I, I don't know if anyone listening is familiar with this concept. There's a lot of brands that are doing it and a lot of brands that are not doing it. Um, and it, it might not be as essential for an app developer um, but I, I do like to talk about it with anyone that has any sort of branding. Um, and we talk about millennials and appreciating story doing rather than storytelling. Whereas five or six years ago, the best brands, the biggest brands that were game changing brands were really good at storytelling. Today, millennials don't buy into your brand's messages. They don't care what you're saying. They don't care about the things that you're saying. They want you to be doing things with them. So we talked about the co-creation and participation economy, and that's the idea of story doing. Don't just tell people what you're doing. Don't tell people what you offer. Actively invite them inside. And so if you're a story doing brand, you're not only sharing your stories, but you're helping people create their own. So story doing brands are these brands, and I, I like to talk about brands that are actively inviting millennials to participate because these are the ones that really see really see a turnaround in their business because millennials can sniff out any brand message but once i love and once i start sharing a brand's messages that's story doing that's when my partners my target audience their content turns into my fuel as a brand and that's when you're going to really win with millennials and you're a millennial as well greg so perhaps um we can learn something from you what what phone do you carry around with you uh, i'm on an iphone what's on your home screen what are your favorite apps <laughs> that's a great question i'm i'm i bounce around a lot of apps and and you know the the truth is the apps like i said the useful ones i remember when i first got an iphone this would have been 
man, back when I was in high school, and I, I got the uh, the lightsaber app, you know, the Star Wars app where I could, I could have the <laughs> lightsaber. And I thought yeah. that was so cool, and it's not anymore. So when we talk about apps, like I said, useful is the new cool, and find apps that help people. I use Hello Vino on a regular basis. I am not a wine guy myself, but I've been trying to be. So Hello Vino helps me out a lot. Um, I, I'm, always, right. I'm always using Uber. Um, the, the new one I tried out very recently is Confide. I don't know if you've heard of Confide. Confide is the new um, Snapchat for business chatting. Um, yes. So there's, there's some interesting apps that we've been playing around with over here. Um, but yeah, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll leave you with those couple <laughs> to check out. That's great. Thanks, Greg. That's terrific. Well, uh, um, I would recommend every, anyone listening to this to go to millennialmarketing.com. Go and check it out. Go and read the stuff by Jeff and Greg and uh, certainly reach out to, to Greg. He's offered there. So it's thank you very much for your time, Greg. Sure, thank and, you, Paul. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, as you move into the uh, my age bracket and, and out of millennials, perhaps we can have another chat. Uh, I don't. What do you call my generation? I'm 44 years old. You're probably, and you're probably right at the uh, end of Gen X there. Gen X, okay. <laughs> right. Sure. Well, in the I next one, Gen Y. Is there a Gen Y? We're millennials are Gen Y. Those are synonyms. Okay. And then after us, there's the younger generation that we call the plurals. And so some people would say the tweens. Um, so that's okay. Gen, that's Gen Z, but we call them plurals. What is going to happen when we get past Gen Z? That's going to be awkward, isn't it? There's going to be a shift there. It's going to, we're going to go double it. It's generation <laughs> Great, Greg. Listen, I've had enough of your time there. Thanks very much for joining us on the App Guide podcast, and I hope to see you in a future episode. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. And if you do have any ideas on who we should interview, please send that email to info at onemob.com. That's info at o-n-e-m-o-b dot com. 